you to turn in your Bibles this morning to John chapter 2. We'll be starting at verse 23. And as we saw in that sketch this morning, the world would be a very different place without Jesus. More than people sometimes realize. For example, in our country, there are those who really want nothing to do with God who don't realize that the very freedoms we enjoy as Americans are rooted in a biblical worldview. That those freedoms, the freedom of speech or the right to assemble as we do today without fear or the freedom that we have to vote and elect our officials, the freedoms that we have as Americans to pursue our dreams and to uh, our very system of government, all of those things have a biblical foundation. And without that biblical foundation, if we try to run without God, it's like running on fumes. And sooner or later, it's going to run out or it's going to run dry. Really, like in the story that was shared here or in the sketch as well, too, you can see Jesus in many different things when you have the eyes to see it. Because when Jesus came into our world, He brought light and hope and salvation. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. I want to begin uh, by looking back a little bit to what we talked about last week and then move forward so you can just kind of keep your uh, Bibles open to this passage in John 2 and John 3. Uh, But last week we began by looking at the wedding in Cana and we talked about the first miracle of Jesus, the miracle of turning water into wine. And do you remember what that was about? It was about the transforming power of Christ. Just as Jesus turned the water into wine, so He can turn sinners into saints. He can do that redemptive work in our life, that work of spiritual transformation to bring change into our hearts and lives. And then that passage is followed by a passage about Jesus cleansing the temple, where He goes into the temple and He drives out the money changers and those who were there with sheep and cattle, and He scatters the coins of the money changers. And the Jewish leaders who saw this happening were shocked by him. But they did wonder, could this be indeed a prophet who has come? Now in the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the cleansing of the temple comes in the last week of Jesus' ministry. It is placed there in the final week when after the triumphal entry he goes into the temple, he sees what is happening there, and he casts them out. Now, in John's Gospel... It comes at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And it could be placed there either for theological reasons, or it may in fact be that there were two cleansings. I think that's very likely because the details in them are different in what happens in those situations. There are similarities, yes, because it's the temple and there's a cleansing, But if this one occurred at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, there would be at least two and possibly three years between these cleansings. To do it once would be impudent. To do it twice would have been unthinkable and could get someone killed, which in fact it did. So why did Jesus come into the temple and what was this about? The cleansing of the temple was about His authority as the Messiah, that He has the right to do this. He has the right to tell us how God is to be worshipped. 
and how we are to approach His throne of grace. And He wants us to do that with purity in our heart. So the Jewish leaders demanded of Jesus a sign. If you are the Messiah or a prophet, show us. By what authority do you do these things, they asked. And Jesus gave them a cryptic answer. He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they were shocked by what he said. I mean, immediately they're thinking about this temple complex that has taken 46 years to build to this point, would continue to be worked on because it was a massive structure. And they couldn't see. I mean, what are you saying? Destroy this temple in three days and you're going to build it up again? The other thing that enters into this was that destruction or defacing of a temple of worship was a capital offense in the Greco-Roman world. Temples were protected places. And so Jesus saying this, threatening the temple, was a serious charge. In fact, it would be brought against Jesus at his trial when the witnesses tried to come together and find some reason to accuse him or put him to death. They brought this up, that Jesus had said he was going to destroy this temple. But Jesus never said that. He didn't say, I will destroy this temple. Instead, he said, you destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days or within the span of three days. And only after he rose from the dead did the disciples recall these words and understand what he said. You see, the ultimate sign that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, would be his death and resurrection. Remember John's thesis? Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. The final ultimate proof of that is going to be Jesus' death and resurrection. But there's an irony here, isn't it? It is ironic that the religious leaders who demanded a sign would be the very ones who would bring it about. They would be the ones who would have Jesus sentenced to death. And they would bring about the very sign that they sought. What was happening here? But Jesus would in time replace the temple as the place of worship. The spiritual transformation that took place here would be this, that under the Old Covenant, the Jewish believers came to a place, the temple in Jerusalem, to worship God. But today, we come not to a place, but to a person. We come to the person of Jesus Christ and we can worship Him anywhere. We don't have to go to Jerusalem to the temple to worship God. We can meet as believers in cities and towns and villages all around the world. And we gather together on a day like this, the Lord's Day, to come corporately because there's encouragement in our fellowship and we can come and we can worship God here in this place. But we can worship God wherever we are in our hearts because we come to a person and not a place. We come to Jesus Christ. So how does all of this happen? How is it possible that Jesus can turn sinners into saints? How is it possible that we can experience this new relationship with God and worship Him as He intends? It all begins with the new birth that we are going to look at today. Listen to what 
John writes in John chapter 2, beginning of verse 23. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs that he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. And now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. We're going to pause there. What John is telling us in this first part of this section of Scripture is that we cannot come to God by human merit or wisdom. It's pretty obvious as we begin to dig into this. Verses 23 to 25 are really his transitional statement, and they tell us something about the heart of man. They tell us that Jesus knows the heart of every man, every woman, every child. He can see into our very soul. He knows our past. He knows our present. He knows even what our future is going to be. And that is something that only God can know. And Jesus is God. It is a statement about His omniscience again that even though there were people who had seen some of the miracles that Jesus performed and they had made this profession of faith in Him, Jesus did not trust them because He knows our heart. And He knows how fickle the human heart can be. We have only to think of in the Scripture, for example, the triumphal entry of Jesus when they were ready to crown Him King. And then just a few days later, the crowds are shouting, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Or you can think of Peter, who said to Jesus that I will never deny you. I'm willing even to die for you. And yet just a few hours later, would deny that he even knew Him. What is the heart of man like? Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The human heart is filled with sin. We see that even in ourselves, don't we? Even those of you who have walked with God for many years, aren't there times when you are surprised by a thought that goes through your mind? Or an attitude of the heart that comes out? Or when you are under pressure in your life and you see our own self-centeredness. Our own heart is filled with sin and desperately needs a cure. So when Nicodemus came to Jesus, there's a deliberate connection in the way that he is introduced. You have this statement about Jesus knowing the heart of man. And then John introduces, introduces Nicodemus in this way. In verse 1 he says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. And what do we learn about Nicodemus? Well, Nicodemus is sort of like a test case. I mean, his, his story, he's like a representative of the human race, if you will, right now. It's like, let's put forward the best guy that we can find. And ask the question, would God accept him? 
would he find favor with God? So here you have Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is a religious man. He is a Pharisee. He's devout and moral. Now we have kind of a negative view of Pharisees because of all the stories we've read in the Scripture. Stories that show the Pharisees being kind of self-righteous or hypocritical. But if you were living at that time, you would have thought the Pharisees were the best. I mean, these were the religious guys. These were the guys who are moral. They are conservative in their views. They believe that the Old Testament is the Word of God. They try to live by it. They pray seven times a day. They go to the temple three times a day. Uh, Barclay said about the Pharisees that they were never a very large group. There was probably no more than 6,000 of them at one time because they were so devout. They wanted to follow the Word of God as best as they understood. Who would that group be today? I mean, would you call these guys, you know, would it be like taking somebody who's an evangelical and say, let's see if this person will pass the test. Nicodemus was also an educated man. And there are two notes we see on that. One is that Jesus Himself later in verse 10 will call Him Israel's teacher. You are Israel's teacher and yet you do not know these things? Nicodemus may have been the authoritative teacher in Israel among the Pharisees. Let's take the best theologian that we have and put him forward. Not only that, Nicodemus was a scholar. His name is a Greek name. And at that time, the upper class in Israel often had their children educated both in Hebrew school and in Greek school. And it seems that Nicodemus preferred his Greek name. He would have been trained in classical Greek studies as well as in Jewish Hebrew studies. And here he is, this man who is well educated. He is no dummy coming to Jesus. He is also a political man. He is a leader in government, a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council made up of 70 men who had authority over every Jew in the world. This was the highest legislative body in Israel. He is an aristocrat, a wealthy man. He came from a respected family. There is good evidence that his family line went back to the Maccabees in Israel's history. And on top of all that, he is a Jewish man, a descendant of Abraham, God's chosen people. And the Jews believed that they were in. I mean, aren't we the ones that God had chosen to be in His family and the Gentiles were out and the Gentiles are the ones that need to repent and be converted? Nicodemus was like the best of men. But is he good enough? Is he good enough? Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Some think that he wanted to come in secret so that others wouldn't see. It may have simply been a practical matter that he just wanted time to talk with Jesus and Jesus was so busy during the day that he met with them at night. Sometimes we think of this conversation being private between just Jesus and Nicodemus, but... John may have been there or some of the other disciples. That might be why we have the account that we do. That John might have been there to record what Jesus was saying in this conversation. And John may also be using the phrase at night to show that Nicodemus was spiritually still 
in the dark. Nicodemus was respectful of Jesus. He said to him, Rabbi, to this young man, compared to Nicodemus' age, he said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God. No one could do the miraculous signs that you do if God were not with him. And he comes respectfully, and there is a question in his heart, but Nicodemus doesn't know how to say it. And Jesus cuts right to the heart. Why? Because he knows the heart of man. If we had a conversation with Jesus, Jesus would look right into our soul, and he would put his finger on the very thing in our heart that needs to be addressed. That's what He does when we come to Him in prayer and we ask His Holy Spirit to search our heart and see if there is any hurtful way in us. He puts His finger on the issues that need to be addressed in our life. And so Jesus says to Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, that no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Nicodemus, I know that you are a good man compared to other men. I know that you are devout. I know that you are moral. You are religious. You are well-educated. You are a leader. You are respected with a good name and a good family. But none of that will get you into heaven. None of that is going to get you into the kingdom of God. What do you think Nicodemus' reaction was to that? How hard that must have been to hear. I mean, there are people who all their life try to shape themselves up, try to do everything that they could think of to please God in terms of human works or effort. And to find out that none of that is good enough had to be shocking for Nicodemus. If, Nick, if Jesus were speaking to our generation, He might say, I know you go to church every week. I know that you pray faithfully. I know that you give money to help the poor. I know that you care about your neighbors and your friends. And you are devout. But if that's all you've got, that's not enough. That's not enough. It is your relationship with Me that counts. A few weeks ago in the news, there was a story even about Mother Teresa in which her diaries were made public. Did any of you read that in the paper? The story about Mother Teresa and her feelings about her relationship with God. It was rather shocking. I had some people ask me questions about that because Mother Teresa, who at a young age had felt sort of God's call on her life, for almost all of her entire life felt abandoned by God distance. Felt like when she prayed, God was not there. That God did not hear her prayers. And it bothered her deeply. And she wrote about all of those things in her journal. Now, I'm not saying that Mother Teresa did not know God. Because there are saints who have struggled with depression and abandonment in their life and they felt that way. But how sad it would be if Mother Teresa labored all of her life to help the poor and yet did not know God in her own soul and did not have that assurance of salvation. 
how sad that would be. We cannot enter the kingdom of God by human merit or wisdom. We cannot enter the kingdom of God without a new birth. We must be born again. Look at, look at what Jesus says, continuing in verse 4. Nicodemus asked the question, How can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? For no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. And everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Nicodemus was troubled by what Jesus said. He understood that Jesus was talking about a literal birth of some kind, but he said, I don't get this, Jesus. I can't enter a second time into my mother's womb. And Jesus said, no, that's not what I'm talking about. What Jesus was referring to is that all men are born spiritually dead because of sin. There's a void in our life, an emptiness there because of our sin. We do not have that spiritual relationship with God. And we need to be given new life by the Spirit of God. We need to be born again spiritually. And He tells us that we must be born of water and the Spirit. Now, when theologians have looked at that and tried to decide or figure out what is the water that's referred to here, there are many different suggestions for what is the water. Most people understand the Spirit part. We need to be born of the Spirit. But what does he mean when he says we are born of water? And there are so many answers that any time you see that, it probably means that nobody knows for sure what it is. But here are some of the suggestions. The water may refer to natural birth. Kind of like verse 6, where Jesus said, flesh gives birth to flesh, and the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. 
And that understanding, what Jesus is saying is a person must be born physically and they must be born spiritually to enter the kingdom of God. Others suggest that it is John's baptism that is referred to here in terms of water. John's baptism was a baptism for repentance of sins. And so it may be saying you cannot be born again unless you repent of your sin and are born again of the Spirit of God. Some think that it is Christian baptism that is referred to, but that's not likely because Nicodemus would not have understood that at all. That would be reading back into the text something that's not there. Uh, Some suggest, like James Boyce, that it is a metaphor for the Word of God, that we are born again through the Word of God and the Spirit. Others think, like Ken Weiss, that it is a reference also to the Holy Spirit. Because in John 7, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as living water. And so both are saying the same thing in the way that you could read it, is that no one could enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water, even the Spirit of God. I think it's probably the natural birth, uh, spiritual birth, or else it could be the Holy Spirit, the same. I kind of look at both of those, and I, I think there's a toss-up there between, that it may be a reference to the Holy Spirit a second time. In any case, the application is the same, that we have got to be born from above by the Spirit of God. And how do you know when that's taken place, when someone has been born again? How do you know when it's happened in our heart or in the heart of someone else? Well, it is like the wind. We can't see the wind, but we can see the effect that the wind has on things. We can see the leaves rustling or the trees bending in the wind. We can feel the effect when we drive in our car or truck. And we can't see the Spirit of God, but we can see the change that He makes in people's lives. And what are those evidences of grace? What are the changes that He makes in a person's heart? Well, one of those is the evidence of faith. That we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We have become convinced that Jesus is the one that He claims to be. And so we've placed our trust and our confidence in Him. Secondly, we have the assurance of our salvation. In Romans 8.16, the Scripture says that the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are a child of God. We know in our heart. It's like that the uh, hymn, He Lives. You ask me how I know He lives? He lives within my heart. I know that He is real. And I know these things are true. And the third evidence of grace is that we bear fruit for Christ. It is the evidence of a changed life. And in our heart we see the fruit of the Spirit. Things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. We can tell the change that Jesus has made in our life. So how does that happen? What must we do to be born again? Well, Jesus gives us an illustration Himself. And it comes from the Old Testament, from the book of Numbers, in chapter 21, verses 4 to 9, and it will be on the screen here for you if you'd like to follow along on that. It's a story of where the children of Israel were traveling in the wilderness from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. 
But on the way, the people grew impatient, and they spoke against God, and they spoke against Moses. They grumbled and complained. And they said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread, there's no water, we don't like this miserable food. And then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. And the people came to Moses, and they said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. And anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. And then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. What's the connection here to Jesus? Well, there are several. Here's the point of comparison. Number one, the Israelites were guilty of disobedience and sin. And so are we. We are guilty of sin as well. Two, they were under condemnation by God. They were being punished for their sin by these serpents. And we are under God's judgment as well. Three, they could not rescue themselves. There was nothing that they could do to change their situation. Neither can we. Fourth, the venom was deadly and there was no cure. All who were bitten by these serpents were going to die. And all who have sinned will die. Five, the object lifted up before them was a symbol of their judgment. In the same way, Christ, the Scripture said, became a curse for us when He bore our sins on the tree. And sixth, they were urged to look and live. All they had to do was believe the promise of God that if they would look upon His provision for their sin, they would live. It didn't matter how many times they had been bitten or how much they knew about God or didn't know about God. All they had to do was believe the promise of His provision and put their trust in that and they would live. It's just like the thief on the cross who hung there with Jesus, looked to Jesus and said, Remember me when you come into paradise. And Jesus said, Today you will be with me in paradise, in my Father's presence. The point of this story is that Jesus is God's provision for our sin. And Jesus tells him himself in this gospel that God loves the world so much that he gave the very best gift he could ever give. He gave the gift of his Son, his one and only Son. That whoever believes, whoever places their trust and their confidence in Him will not perish, but will have eternal life. He tells us that God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And whoever believes in Him will not be condemned. They have already crossed over from death to life. And eternal life is a present possession for the believer. But the choice here is for us to look to Him and live.
This is the verdict, Jesus said. Light has come into the world. But men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. There are those who have heard about what God has done in Christ, but they don't want to look to Jesus. They want to continue in their sin. But all who look to Him will live. That's the invitation that I want to extend to you this morning. If you have never done this before, or if you have any doubts about your salvation at all, look upon Jesus this morning and ask Him to be your Savior and to forgive your sins and live. Let's pray.